Hello and welcome to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Park Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ushin Collins. The last week of Derby action. Everyone's back to work properly tomorrow. Christmas officially over. It's Nolugnaman here in Ireland anyway. And yeah, back to normal, normal life. But before we do, one last round of Pro 14 derbies to talk about. We are at round 13 in the Guinness Pro 14. But before we do, a quick look at the rugby news. And it's been a busy week this week, Park. It really has. And we'll start with some international news. And the Welsh are rejigging how they give out contracts again. After all the furore of national dual contracts, it now looks like the WRU are going to replace those with some sort of pay band system. Again, still sorting the details out, but might be a big change to Welsh rugby and could help them to keep some of those players who've been attracted to France and England in the last number of years. It just looks like everyone's going to be paid out of a central pot, no matter what club they're in. Or I've read that incredibly wrong. I don't know. It'll be uh, some fight to figure out who puts the money in the pot then. Yeah, that that won't go down well, I'd say. I think that's the controversial bit. A really nice move from the RFU in England, who've announced 28 professional contracts for the women's 15s team in a reversal of the move they made after the last Women's Rugby World Cup. Strange that they're reversing it now, but definitely a step in the right direction. It's a huge statement by them of where they're going with the women's game. The women's league over in England is getting a lot more coverage and more viewership and tendencies. So women's rugby in England is on the rise and we really need to start keeping up. It'll be interesting to see if the IRFU take similar steps. One thing that England could probably learn something from, the IRFU and the provinces have a good relationship. It looks like there's another fight about to break out between the RFU and Premier Rugby, who represent the interests of the clubs in the English game. Basically all around ring-fencing certain teams into a premiership, removing relegation, games midweek. Is that the thing that they said made their league brilliant? That and trying to kill Lions Tours appears to be their primary hobby. Oh, I get you. So they want to be more like the Pro 14. Something like that. Because the Pro 14 is the greatest league in the world. <laughs> Effectively, if this fight doesn't get sorted, we're looking at Rugby League 2.0 in, in England. and The none, Great Schism. And anyone in that breakaway league won't be able to play for England. That's okay. They can just pick all the English players playing abroad, like... Stefan Armitage? There's one. Right, I, need, have... I need more current references. <laughs> we have one. We have one. <laughs> the last bit of news coming out of the UK this week was that Worcester were playing Bath. And apart from the fact that there was 18 minutes of extra play in the second half, it ended with 15 players for Worcester against 11 for Bath, with three yellow cards deep in injury time on top of a red. That is incredible. How was the game even allowed to continue with that many extra players? It's like... When you used to play on FIFA and you get so many players sent off, you'd forfeit the game on purpose. Exactly, I thought that would happen. I would have thought so too. What annoyed me about it was a lot of those yellow cards were for front row forwards and the scrum just seemed to be falling apart. And the solution to that was yellow cards. For me, particularly when it's just one front row getting dominated by another, I don't think yellow cards are the answer to that. It further disadvantages the team when you're already just being hammered. It's not the same as foul play. I think it's a bit unfair. It does depend on how each scrum is going down or like if a team just be monstered back and the ref's going off no that's fine but if you're drag- constantly dragging it down or just not letting the scrum happen the ref has to do something i guess a bit of club news in the pro 14 then the southern kings became the first south african club to be privately owned with a local business taking a 75 percent stake in the club which hopefully means a bit more of an influx of you know money to that club which they are still badly in need of they really are and i think this is a step in the right direction for them, especially given the money situation in South Africa in general. Because I don't think the South African Union has a lot to throw around. So if they can get it from a private source, brilliant. And if they can sort out a stadium, a shop, and keep growing the support and get a decent fan base behind them, there is hope there. 
And that's important for the league. We want to see strong teams in South Africa. But you know what? There was a lot of rugby this weekend and a lot of strong teams. And we'll move on to the first game, which was Benetton v Glasgow on Saturday afternoon. Benetton winning this one, 20 points to 17. What did I say last week? The one time you wanted to play Glasgow was on their current run of form and Benetton took full advantage. And Benetton really started well, like controlling the ball and playing most of the rugby in Glasgow's half. And nearly benefiting early on, Hastings threw an incredibly stupid, wide, floaty pass, the kind that we're getting really sick of. But then there was a knock-on, and a couple of phases later, Benetton get a try off simple phase ball. And watching this, you thought if Benetton could get a second try, Glasgow might lose interest very early on. But they didn't. Glasgow came back into this fairly sharpish and got their own first phase try. They did. And how many first phase tries have we been seeing in the last couple of weeks? It must be a real bugbear of defence coaches because defences are just getting carved open at scrum and line out time. It is the only place where there's genuine space on the field. So there should actually be more rather than less first phase tries being scored. For sure. One thing that was really impressive for me, Benetton's counter-attacking was a really, really ambitious. They just couldn't quite get the quick rook ball that they needed. Glasgow disrupting an awful lot of it and they eventually got pinged for doing so illegally. And from that penalty, Benetton go for the corner, line out Maul, and a few phases later, Dean Budd just reaches over with penalty advantage again. It's so rare to see a player make that reach in those situations. They usually just try and fend the ball backwards. To well, cl- certainly, and to keep control of the ball. <laughs> we well, see yeah. a lot of knock-ons. <laughs> but still, it was a really good effort. And what was noticeable for me was that every time Benetton touched the ball, they seemed to be able to lift the pace of the game. And Glasgow, weirdly, weren't able to live with it. The other big thing within this match, Glasgow just weren't taking their points. They had a number of kickable penalties that they turned down looking to try and get tries, which just didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. No, it really didn't. And they did finish off the half stronger with a really, really easy try. There was a massive hole in the Benetton defence and they just flew through it. Yeah, Benetton guilty of losing their concentration coming into half time a little bit. Although Benetton did get over first in the second half. Really good patience from them. But Allen missed the conversion to add to one that he'd missed in the first half. And given how close this game finished, that was very nearly costly. And with the game that tight, Glasgow had the line shared the possession for that final 20 minutes. They should have done a lot more with it. Benetton got let out of jail a couple of times, hasting through a terrible forward pass. So Benetton got an escape from that. They missed a shot at goal, which was unbelievable. And then from the ensuing 22, Glasgow knock it on and then give away an offside penalty for someone in front of the ball putting hands on it. I was losing my mind at this point because I genuinely thought Benetton were going to throw it away. But they held on to win it. They Benettoned it. They just ground it out. Like, they didn't really look like in breached one-on-one on tackles. Their, their man of tackling was incredible. One really disappointing thing during this game was listening to the commentary team who were just trying to figure out how Glasgow were going to come back and win this. And given that Benetton came into and finished this weekend third in their conference, I think there probably needs to be a little bit more respect shown. Benetton were patient, they had good ball protection and they're really well disciplined across this match. They should have been worthy of more respect. I think so and particularly from Glasgow, who didn't show them that respect either. They were arrogant. They didn't take the shots that were on. They were trying to play too much rugby. They made bad decisions. And worse of all, they were very inaccurate by their own standards. It just was brain dead at times. Even if they were like isolating forwards in the back line and small things like that, that you expect to see from Glasgow. True, and that was the big gap for Benetton. They were a little bit misaligned in defence. They were caught numbers down a couple of times or with forwards defending against backs in the wide channel. And it's a little surprising to be sitting here talking about a Benetton win where Tommaso Allen wasn't at his best. 
but they did enough. Winning ugly is the best way to learn lessons. It certainly is. Speaking of winning ugly, we move on to the first of the Welsh derbies, Ospreys v Cardiff, and this finished 20 points to 11 in favour of the Ospreys. A huge result, as this is an in-conference match, and denying a rival a losing bonus point is huge. It is, and this was a game marred by injury. There was a couple of what looked like serious enough injuries to Ospreys players, and I don't know how many more injuries that Welsh squad can take ahead of the Six Nations, but it's great news for Ireland. Oh, no, it was really bad. It was one of the longest first halves I think I've ever witnessed. And not a whole lot of massive highlights, although Scott Williams got a really nice try brushing Josh Navidi off in the tackle, which isn't something many players do. That's Welsh international Josh Navidi. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, though? They came back with a quick reply, getting a try in the corner off a beautiful Anscombe crossfield kick. Osprey's defending at the previous break, though, was absolutely shocking. It wasn't great. (laughs) But Ospreys, in general, had a lot of ball, a lot of endeavour, but their accuracy at times was just all over the shop. And it took just certain moments to break through. You look at the difference between these two sides, and it's all about where they were able to get their world-class players into the game, where Tipperick was able to get his hands on the ball, or where George North was able to either take the crossfield kick like he did for his own try, or just rampage through that Cardiff backline. Yeah, his try off a Sam Davies crossfield kick was brilliant, but Let's have a real look at what, how the Cardiff were set up defensively. 14 in the line, and the one who was covering back was far too near the defensive line to be in any way useful in the backfield. It's just as well North was having a good game, because on the other wing, I think Luke Morgan was badly exposed. Don't get me wrong, he has a brilliant try-scoring record this year. I think nine tries in 12 appearances. But some of his positional awareness and just the rugby knowledge you expect from having played 15s for years is missing. He's a poor man's Carlin Isles, I'll tell you that. <laughs> the second half really was much of the same. Ospreys kicked a lot of ball to Cardiff. They really weren't worried about any of the attacking threats they had. No, and it was a similar defensive play from Cardiff. I think the difference here was that the Ospreys were just a little bit more clinical. Anscombe was able to pull three points back after he got mullered off a clearance kick. But you know what? Other than the Ospreys giving Cardiff shots at goal... There wasn't a whole lot else happening. They didn't look like they were going to be able to get into the game. And the straw that broke the camel's back was the Sam Davies drop goal that just put this to nine points and put the game to bed. Look, this was an Ospreys win based on strong performance from their pack, a big scrum, and just being that little bit more accurate than Cardiff, who simply didn't take their chances and didn't generate much. And the Cardiff team that missed 22% of their tackles. You cannot let a team run through you that easily. No, their one-up tackling was diabolical. And that was the big risk here because their halfbacks were pretty decent. Thomas Williams and Gareth Anscombe playing relatively well for Cardiff. But the problem is, where were Lilo and Halaholo? This is a centre partnership that people were willing to break up so they could get either one of these two players. Hmm. They're virtually non-existent for this game. Which is crazy because they started the season so well, but they've really gone off form in the last couple of games as a unit. I think Cardiff were lucky that Ospreys, let's be honest, aren't the strongest team overall. You would like to have seen Ospreys go out and get a bonus point win here. But when you look at that team from 1 to 15, they're pretty average at the moment. Like Sam Davies blows hot and cold. They've got, for me, three world-class players in George North, Alan Wynne-Jones and Justin Tipperick. But who outside of that are starters for the Welsh team, are potential players at international level? Not a whole lot. It's a worry, especially given that Cardiff can't play a full 80 minutes at the moment. And if you look at the other Welsh derby... 
Scarlet's v Dragons. Like, Scarlet's ran out comfortable 22 points to 13 winners. Which sounds like a strange statement, but you're right. They never looked at risk of losing this game. But they didn't look like putting Dragons away either. Like, they have so many injuries. Ken Owens was at eight. This was great fun because everybody thought that the team sheet guy on social media had just made a mess of it. But then on runs Ken Owens, Lions hooker Ken Owens, wearing a number eight on his back. I'll tell you what I thought was really strange. Why didn't they have him throwing in in the lineout? They gave it to like the academy hooker who came on, who made a mess of the Scarlet set piece. Was it one of those things of letting focus on being an eight for the first time ever? I mean, counting to eight is a challenge for some forwards, <laughs> but he, he seemed to do a pretty decent job. You know what the difference for me was this week? Scarlets took their points where they were on offer. They actually recognised how Dragons have turned a corner over the Christmas period, and their first 12 points were just keeping the scoreboard ticking over. Really important stuff. That shows how much respect that Dragons have garnered very quickly of those two performances. And it was deserved. They were playing very smart stuff. And they were playing the same type of rugby over the weekend. Letting Scarlets have the ball. But I think Scarlets just had a bit more than Ospreys did last week. The defensive performance from Scarlets was a lot more composed. They were able to run the ball back at Dragons. And I think Dragons just were a little bit more indisciplined this week than in previous weeks. They gave them a lot of chances. It also helped that Scarlets had a recognised 10 playing at fly half. Even if Dan Jones isn't great, at least everyone is in the position they're familiar with. Apart from Ken. Speaking of being in the right position, what did you make of the referee's call just before half time? For me, it looked like Kirshner held the ball up. That's fine. That was a ball held up. He also DDT'd the, the Scarlet's player into the ground with an arm around the neck. It was a high tackle, so it should have been a penalty try. The ref should have seen that and gone, hold on a second, that's a penalty. Take him out of play. A try more than likely would have been scored in that situation without him there. And potentially a yellow card as well. But in the end... The Dragons did get their yellow card off a scrum penalty for the Scarlets. No try, though. No, and if I was a Scarlets fan, I'd be pretty annoyed about that. It made a tough outing that little bit more difficult, not getting small things like that. Second half, you could see that the Dragons weren't really putting much together in terms of phase play. And again, it was another first phase ball for the Scarlets where they got their try off a lovely line-out move. Dragons were just asleep on defence. They didn't get off their line quickly enough at all. And when you're that near your own try line, that's just atrocious. But it was a wake-up call. They started to put some width on the ball then after that and looking a bit dangerous. True, they did seem to miss the finishing abilities out wide. Jared Rosser had such a good game for them last week and his presence was really missing. But again, a momentary lapse in concentration. Scarlet's tap and go and they get another penalty on 74 minutes. It was lucky for the Dragons that Scarlet's did go over because if a try had been scored... A Dragons player was going in the bin from tackling a player from behind after tap and go. Yeah, there was definitely a not back 10 yellow card in the waiting there. Dragons did get a consolation try. It's just a shame that if their defence had been a little bit more switched on, we could have been talking about that try getting them a losing bonus point. As it is, they went away with nothing. And in all fairness, that just shows to where they are as a team. They never gave up. And I think they'd be relatively happy with their last three performances. One win in two close games is an awful lot more than they were offering under Jackman, so hopefully it'll enable them to turn a corner. They've got a couple of games in Europe for the next two weeks to go out and play and see what they're made of, and I think they'll look forward to that. But they do need to get their hands on the ball an awful lot more, and they need to protect it when they do have it. Whereas Scarlet's have a lot of the ball, but they're just not accurate enough at the moment. No, good scrum, good performance from the forwards, but the accuracy needs to be a lot sharper, which is a shame because they're taking the right decisions when they are on the ball. They're just not executing to the right level. And speaking of executing, well, 
executions. <laughs> Leinster hosted Ulster and beat them 40 points to seven. This was not a fair fight. This kind of reminded me of that scene in Monty Python where the knight has both arms and both legs chopped off and he's still trying to fight. That's basically what Dan McFarlane did when he picked this team and sent them down against Leinster, regardless of the youth of the team that Leinster picked. That knight had more fight than Ulster did. Pretty much. Leinster really came out of the gate strong here. I think they're listening to the podcast because they certainly didn't have a slow start. No, they scored two tries after some monster carries, like some really good pack physical work. They dominated Ulster and got their rewards. There was some pretty appalling tackling. Conor O'Brien's try, where he just waltzed through like six of the Ulster defenders, was pretty embarrassing, as was the tackling for Leinster's third try. But Ulster did get a try between a second and a third. A good line-out mall, like really well set and at least got something from this match. True, and threatened to make a contest of it for about those seven seconds. It was also pretty impressive, given that Leinster's scrum was absolutely dominant throughout the game, the first choice front row and the replacements. What would have really helped Ulster is if their experienced players actually played as if they were experienced. Like, McPhillips went missing, and missing his kicks in games like this when your pack need anything to give them a bit of confidence doesn't help. Shanahan as well, like, he's got enough game time this season to just play better than he did. I think some of that erratic form that we talk about really showed as well. It did, and we talk about Johnny McPhillips as an experienced player, not just the time he had with Ulster, particularly last season, but his time in the Ireland under-20s, where he was slotting big pressure kicks. He doesn't seem to have that confidence in Ulster this year. Ulster were lucky in a sense that Leinster really let the intensity drop off in the first half after those opening 20 minutes, although they did still get over for their bonus point try on the stroke of half time off a line-out mall and some strong carrying. In all fairness, I think they're lucky Leinster got the bonus point try by half time because the second half could have been a rout. Well, there could have been bodies everywhere and it would have been problematic for the Ulster medical team who seemed to briefly forget that stretchers exist, carrying off loose head prop Kyle McCall in a king's chair at one point. Everyone wanted this game over quickly. They're like, no, no, get him off the pitch. Get him off the pitch now. <laughs> Don't wait for the stretcher. Just move. <laughs> Just go. Yeah, Leinster got a couple more tries. Jameson Gibson Park off the back of that Leinster scrum, which was just dominant. And the problem here is that while Leinster continued to get a couple of tries, Ulster really never looked like scoring. They did keep Leinster out for the first 20, 25 minutes of the second half, but they never looked like they were going to get over themselves. No, and like we like to talk about strengths and weaknesses of the teams, and I really can't see a strength in this Ulster performance. No, there's not a lot to take from this. They got beaten by a stronger, more experienced side who held onto the ball for extended periods and were able to unleash a lot of young talent and get good game time for those players and offered almost nothing in return. But I don't necessarily put this at the player's door. This for me was a big coaching screw up. You can't send that team down with that lack of experience and that lack of quality and expect an outcome. Yeah, when you see all the experienced players for Ulster on Instagram on their holliers this week, you're kind of going, well, we know what's happening here. And I get managing your minutes and giving players rest periods, but if this is what Ulster looked like shorn of their internationals, I would have serious concerns about them going into the Six Nations period. How are they going to get results out of those games? It really is a worry. Leinster, on the other hand, another week they've got the match won, and they just fade. Don't get me wrong, the match was won, and they didn't really have much to do, but... This could have been 80 points if they really went for it. You have to wonder, are they just taking the approach that win, get the bonus point, and that's good enough? They don't really have to prove anything to anybody, 
I would still like to see them cut loose and watch that tri-count rack up, but maybe they're just not concerned with expending that energy. Who knows? But it certainly wasn't the most entertaining Interpro in the world. It wasn't even the most entertaining Interpro that day. We had Connacht versus Munster in the sports ground, and Connacht narrowly losing out 24-31 to a fired-up Munster. I have to admit, that was a really strong performance for Munster. He brought a strong team to the sports ground, and... I do think it was that difference in quality across the board, especially the bench, that won it for you. Yeah, it was a real performance, 1-23, to and you could tell that the level of intensity, far from dropping off, it nearly escalated when the bench came on, the likes of Connor Murray and CJ Stander coming into the contest. Oh, what a bench to have. So sad. (laughs) Although you did have a great start. Tom Farrell with the greatest rip and 60-metre run in the world. Just so you know, we watched this match together and the conniptions Ushin was having when Farrell was running up the pitch, especially when he could see everyone on the Munster team <laughs> go to ground thinking the ball was being rubbed. But like both it doesn't get ripped and it happened twice in this match. I think I was as confused as the Munster team trying to figure out where the ball had gone. And at that point, Farrell's already waltzing over the 22. It was a brilliant try. But Munster rallied well, composed themselves... And I think our tactical kicking game was really strong in this. We pinned you back. It really was the difference. And we gave Carberry far too much time. Like, let's let's take an example. The first kick from Jack Carty in the match. Botha just gives him a bit of afters. Carberry's first kick, he has acres of time and space. And no one's clattering into him. Give away the penalty. Let Carberry know you're there. Munster showed that last week against Johnny Sexton when Finneen Witcherly hit him. You have to put the idea in the opposition 10's head that they are being hunted down. And Carberry had a bit of an armchair ride at times here. It does help when your back row is giving him great ball. Munster won 111 out of 113 rooks. Like, that is dominant. But it isn't just the consistency of that. The speed of ball was excellent. Albie Matthewson and Murray, when he came on, had the ball on a plate. But you did score some nice tries. We did. Earls ran that kind of hidden line behind Carberry and that quick out the back door pass unleashed him. Couple of missed tackles. Quinn and Blade will not be looking forward to that video review session. And then a five metre scrum. He just gave it to a big lad and he ran over. Like it was too easy. Like I was disgusted watching that. I tell you who will be looking forward to the video review session on Monday is Quinn Rue. Only in the hope that he can truly prove that he is completely invisible, even on camera. Like I don't know how he wasn't penalised or sin-binned for the stuff he was getting away with. He was everywhere except on his own side of the rock. People wonder why he's in Irish teams, why he's near the Irish squad. This is the stuff he does for Connacht week in, week out. And he's getting away with it and he puts his body around and he has such great physicality. Him and Thornbury put in a serious shift in the scrum. You weren't getting wheeled backwards the way I know you were worried you might with Dennis Buckley dropping out of the game at last minute. But He is a menace at the breakdown. He's doing all the stuff that Alan Quinlan used to do, except Quinny kept getting caught. For me, though, I think there was a lack of variation from Carty, which is really weird. We've seen how he's able to vary a game with running, kicking and passing, but he seemed to only kick when you ran out of ideas or were getting driven backwards. Yeah, it wasn't ideal. And when you're kicking on the back foot like that, they weren't the best kicks in the world. Like there was a few peaches into the corners, but it was a bit too late into the game at that stage. Very much so. In Farrell v Farrell, the showdown of a generation, I think your Farrell edged it out. He seemed to be able to get outside the Munster defensive line almost at will. Yeah, I think his pockets were like like 120 kilos heavier today. <laughs> Maybe. He was fishing the other Farrell back out of them. But 
you know what? He did have a really, really good performance. His offloading is excellent. He put Kelleher away for that try. He always runs good meters. He's strong in contact and defensively. Like, he's such a good player. He, for me, has to be in the Irish conversation this stage. I think so. And I think he's a very different player to Chris Farrell. And it's all about what you want from your 13. You'd have to say Tom Farrell is a closer match to that Gary Ringrose type of 13. I would be expecting to see him in and around the camp for the Six Nations. Munster's outside backs, though, did have a couple of beautiful breaks. Alex Wooten looked very dangerous back in the team after injury. Andrew Conway was electric. And that break for Conway, apart from some somewhat dubious passes within it that may or may not... Well, dubious is the word I was using. But you know what? The quick rook ball and the offloading and the lines that players like Ty Byrne were running and the amount of ground he had to make up, it was just showing how good Munster can be when we get quick ball and when we're playing heads-up rugby. And... It just kind of stopped when Tyler came on. He isn't the answer at 10. No. And I don't know what question you're asking if he is. <laughs> Either way, he and Joey are not answers to the same question. Our whole game changes. The profile of the team changes. He sits so much deeper that I was nearly amazed we did get the bonus point try. And that was only when Joey Carberry came into the line at first centre and darted inside. But you know what? We kicked an awful lot too much as well. And the quality of the kicking really, really dropped. And we got the losing bonus point off some poor kicking and some really bad tackling. Yeah, Fyinga was just given way too much time and space to offload. He basically carried Tommy O'Donnell halfway down the pitch like a handbag and then gave the ball to Carty to go into the posts. I don't think he'll ever score an easier try. He definitely won't. And great to see Connacht fighting all the way until the end. I think if you'd offered Connacht the losing bonus point just after the team sheets were announced here, you would have taken it? I would have. I would have always felt we could compete with Munster. I think Connacht proved they could, especially with a team that was missing a few frontliners and their captain. Look, Munster came out with a strong set piece, a dominant line out, and they won the collisions, along with some pretty clever tactical kicking in the first 60 minutes. I think it was a well-won game. It wasn't the Connacht lost this. No, and I was really impressed with the Munster Mall. He made so much hay with it. I'm surprised he didn't try and use it more, to be honest. Yeah, and I think if there's one area of improvement for Munster, our defending outside the 12 channel was really poor. Connacht's outside backs, and Tom Farrell in particular, were able to find so much space. But that was Connacht's real advantage in this. Your ability to get line breaks from complete mismatches was excellent. And it was a scrappy performance from Connacht, I'll give you that fought to the 80th minute and we're looking for the draw but just ran out of space before we ran out of time one of the big things that was missing from this game for Connacht though was your lack of a kicking game which is weird because it's been such a strength of Connacht so far this season and not even the kicks the chases were non-existent and a bad kick can be made good by a good chase no chase makes every kick bad that seems like a fair note to end it on we shall shake hands and move back into being friendlier yeah (laughs) (laughs) The second of the Scottish games this weekend was in Murrayfield, Edinburgh against the Southern Kings. 38-0. Shut out. It was terrible, Boric. It wasn't a good game to <laughs> no, watch. It was, I was dreadful. Like, yeah. like, <laughs> Edinburgh were great, and they didn't just do the minimum to beat this Kings side, but they were playing against paper mache opposition. They scored three tries far too easily in the first 20 minutes. And from there, the game sort of disintegrated. But look at those three tries. One was a simple inside line off the 10. The second was some offloading because the Kings weren't tackling. Glass who? Who knows? <laughs> and on the third try, they actually had a five-on-one overlap on the left wing. I have never seen a five-on-one overlap. I didn't even think that was a thing. We can put screen grabs up, but 
it was there. The Kings at this point are 19 nil down and all of a sudden they don't even try for kickable penalties anymore. They're going into the corner. But they've just made an embarrassment of themselves. They should have taken those points, put something on the board, build a bit of confidence. Like there's nothing worse than constantly going to the corner and constantly knocking the ball on or getting ripped or turned over. It was so inaccurate, Porik. But to be fair to the Kings, the one thing we told them not to come back to the Pro 14 unless they fixed, discipline. And they had 15 players on the pitch throughout. The problem was they didn't bring that kind of physicality in at all. And they continued to make a mess of every breakdown. But it seems if they're not doing it illegally, it's kind of pointless. I think part of the problem is they don't just mess up the opposition's breakdown. They seem pretty clumsy at their own ruck work as well. This was a performance by a Kings team that really weren't switched on. And it seems like it'll take them a couple of matches to get back into the rhythm of things. They have another week off now when they go back to South Africa and then back to back derby games. It'll be interesting to see if they can up their levels a little bit. They really need to. They really do. They did seem like they were on holidays. Edinburgh had the try bonus points sorted by half time. In all fairness, that was a try that took too long to get. Like, one out carries when they had acres of space on both wings. In the second half, the energy just died. Edinburgh looked comfortable. They scored another two more tries in the opening 20 minutes of the second half. But then the last 15 minutes petered out. And the crowd didn't really get the spectacle. Well, what little crowd turned up didn't really get a spectacle. And it's kind of unfair to Edinburgh to have a pop at them because you're not going to fill Murrayfield for a club game against the Southern Kings in the week after Christmas. Especially when you couldn't fill it for the 1872 Cup versus Glasgow. You have to ask a question though. How much money is it costing Edinburgh to open like Murrayfield for these games? Surely they could take a leaf out of the Southern Kings book and go play the game at Edinburgh University Stadium or something else. Well, they tried that and they went back to Murrayfield pretty sharpish. They need that new stadium badly, Porrick. They really do. We'll look at Edinburgh's strengths from this game. Their backline was on fire. It was another case that when Hickey is playing, he tends to make the backs around him look all the more impressive. I think van der Valt has probably got the starting shirt locked down at the moment, but Hickey gives them something different. And it really helps when their pack is just continuously bossing it, like... Kings were blown away by the physicality of Edinburgh. They were, and I guess despite making a mess of every breakdown, they just weren't able to play enough rugby when they did get their hands on the ball, or at least not with enough accuracy. And accuracy was a bit of a criticism for Edinburgh too. They just seemed to lose the head when they got near the try line. They could have had another two tries, but for silly mistakes. Their tie head and a few others got white line fever on a few occasions, and they made this a lot harder than it really needed to be. But job done, bonus point win, and we move on to the final game of the weekend. And the Cheetahs travelled to Zebra and they won 27 points to 12. A bonus point win. Exactly what the doctor ordered. This was a messy enough performance from both sides, but it did seem like messy games were going to suit the Cheetahs. And you could tell it was going to be a messy game when Maxwani saves his nine after he gets a hospital pass in his own goal line. But he still managed to run halfway up the pitch. He does, before chucking a ludicrous forward pass. I mean, I think we figured out why Mexwane stays on the wing. He cannot pass the ball to save his life. Wingers. Failed scrum halves. <laughs> Big failed scrum halves. You know what, though? That cheetah scrum looked extremely tasty, and it was a bit of a penalty vending machine for them in the first half. Even if it was a bit of a lottery in the second half, nothing really changed. I couldn't understand it. But it was open play the Cheetahs were finding their best opportunities. Malcolm Yar nearly got a try, but when Zebra dropped the ball in the 22 and he was first to it, he decided to kick it through instead of either diving on it or just picking it up. He had loads of time. 
Well, it didn't really matter because off the resulting scrum, Cheetahs turned over the ball and after, what, a phase or two, shipped the ball wide. A poor line by Schumann that seemed to confuse the full Zebra defence and a ball in behind him and over the Cheetahs went. Yeah, they were finding tries extremely easily and Zebra were making silly mistakes as well. Off the restart after Cheetah's second try, you have Zebra runners ahead of the kicker. Like, that is such basic schoolboy stuff. That happens at every kickoff. To be that far ahead that you're caught is the issue. i tell you what the real issue was. Carlo Canna looks like he hit the Christmas brandy extremely hard and has been drinking it out of a brown paper bag since. He is a shadow of the player he was last season and even earlier this season. It's really worrying for Zebra because if they had a decent 10, they're actually not a bad squad of players. Like, they got two tries quickly. Max Wayne threw a ridiculous basketball pass that Zebra intercepted and just ran up the pitch and scored. Yeah, because it's cheetahs, so everybody was up in the attacking line. Although, I have no idea how Zebra got the second of those quick-fire double, because that is the slowest pair of centres I have ever seen in my life. It's so slow, he actually had to go back and make sure it wasn't an eight who threw the pass. It doesn't help that he looks like Reese Marshall, <laughs> who's the monster <laughs> hooker. But you know what? Cheetahs found so much space, at least partly because Zebra appeared to have only told the three people either side of every ruck that they were employing a blitz defence, and there was a dogleg in their defensive line at every breakdown. Yeah, but Cheetahs only took advantage of it once, which led to a try. Yeah, just at the start of the second half, Tian Mayer spots that the blitz has gone ahead of the ball and runs in behind it, and a couple of quick passes later, and they're over for try number three. The next 15 minutes, as always in these games, was a bit of an arm wrestle. And Cheetahs could have had the bonus point, but they just made so many errors in the Zebra 22. They did. And Zebra kind of started to fight back into it at this point. There was one occasion where they turned over a five meter lineout maul with some of the most savage maul defense I've ever seen. Ripping the ball in contact and just getting out of jail again. But it didn't help that Cheetahs looked like they're doing everything in their power not to score at times. I mean, they were lucky that Zebra were doing the same thing. Cheetahs did eventually fail slightly less and scored off a line-out maul and then went over for a fifth try. Two minutes later. they I actually thought they were going to get a sixth try off the next kick-out because that's how quickly it took them to go up. The end fitted the match. An unplayable rock. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I think the Cheetahs came out and played more positive, more ambitious rugby and they play heads up as well. They spot a lot of opportunities that other teams may miss. But the problem is, they force those opportunities. I think with a better 10, a bit better decision making, they are a force to be reckoned with. Or at least a more consistent team, which is what you need in the league. True. And Zebra were playing that little bit more consistent game when they still had a competent 10. As it is, their lineout is still working and some of their structured play is still working. But their defensive alignment was a shambles in this game. It was really lacking in leadership. And Carlo Canna had another in a string of poor performances. And it's done them no favours in the league. They're six points behind Cheetahs who have two games in hand. They really are slipping well, well to the bottom of this conference. But there's a bit of a shift at the top. We have new Conference A leaders. Munster on 44 points, overtaking Glasgow on 42. Nice week for the Munster men. Yeah, yeah. Connacht and Ospreys are on 37 points apiece. Ospreys marginally ahead on games one. And Cardiff on 32 points are in fifth place. Only a win away from catching Ospreys and Connacht. But don't forget, if Cheetahs get double bonus point wins against the Kings, which is very possible, they join them on 32 points. This is such a live conference. Which is a stark contrast to Conference B. Leinster are running away with it on 54 points. 
and a plus 247 points difference. But at least there's competition for the playoff spots in this conference. Edinburgh and Benetton are both on 35 points. And Scars and Ulster, 34 and 33 respectively. That's a very live kind of 2 to 5 bracket. You do then see some significant drop-off. Dragons on 18 points and the Kings another 6 points behind them on 12. They do have games in hand, but you are not expecting them to get much, if anything, out of that against the Cheetahs. It's at this time of the year the conference system really shows how good it is. It makes it a lot more interesting because there's so many different combinations. You look at this in a league and only the top six teams are live, whereas now you've got potentially 11 teams still in with a chance of winning the trophy. It's really, really working, even if I did have my doubts at the time. We now move to the second row top performer and clown of the round. And I've got this week's top performer, Por. Oh? I was worried you might pick Tom Farrell, so I've snuck you out of it. (laughs) And gone for a man who's had a brilliant Christmas season. And he just looks ridiculously dangerous at the moment. And that's fridge freezer and winger Duhan van der Merwe for Edinburgh. He was brilliant again against, admittedly, a terrible Southern Kings side but at least was able to bring some interesting stuff into his game that we haven't seen before. He's often used as a battering ram in those wide channels, but we've seen his pace against Glasgow in the last couple of weeks. We saw his handling this week, a beautiful pass off his right for Dougie Fife's try. And the stats on him just don't lie. He is the in-form winger this season, and I think it's a really good call. Not on just the Kings match, but his form over the last couple of games, especially against Glasgow... It's a really deserved. It's almost a shame we couldn't have given it to him to one of those performances. Well, we'll just have to make do. I mean, it is our award. We can probably make the rules. True. <laughs> Boric, you've picked our clown of the round. Uh, what have you gone for this week? This week, I've gone for Tuavati from the Zebra Cheetahs match. It's in the 18th minute. He gets driven to the ground. And then when he's getting back to his feet to get into the offensive line again, he gets the ball passed into his face. Headshot. <laughs> Brilliant. It's like, did he just not see the play was still happening i have no idea and if he didn't beforehand he didn't after (laughs) let's just say he probably won't remember the tackle beforehand either it was bad and to make matters worse cheetahs turned the ball over at that rook two passes out wide and they get over for the try oh that's not good no to walk into a headshot is bad enough but then for that headshot to concede a try almost immediately is even worse not good stuff and a deserving recipient of the Clown of the Round award this week. And given that he was in contention with a referee that forgot to come out for the second half in the Cock Monster match. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny too. We take a look forward to next week's fixtures and we're back to European action. It's round five of the Champions Cup and the Challenge Cup. In Pool 1, Leinster play host to Toulouse in what will be a packed out RDS. For me, that is the pool decider. And in Pool 2, Gloucester host Munster. Which could be the same thing. Certainly, it's a game that Munster need to win if they're going to qualify top of their group. In Pool 3, an all-pro 14 affair, Glasgow hosts Cardiff. And I don't think Cardiff could have wanted this game at a better time. Even though they're out of Europe, they'll still want to get one over on their Pro 14 conference rivals. Pool 4 has two games of Pro 14 interest. Scarlets play host to Leicester and Ulster welcome Racing 92 to Belfast. Scarlets have literally nothing but pride to play for. If I was them, send out the academy... Make sure anyone that's fit stays fit that you need for the rest of the season. On the other hand, Ulster just need a win here. And let's hope that resting all of those players this week against Leinster pays off. Because if not, that was a foolish manoeuvre. In Pool 5, Edinburgh travelled too long. 
This is probably the biggest test Edinburgh have in this competition. I will have my fingers crossed for the Scots, who are on an electric run of form at the moment, but this might be the bridge that's one bridge too far. We'll move on to the Challenge Cup. In Pool 1, Dragons host Timosaurus Saracens. I think this is going to be a home win for the Dragons, given their uptick in form in the last couple of weeks, but nice for them to get a run out after a pretty bruising Christmas period. Another Welsh side in action then in Pool 2, the Ospreys playing host to Worcester. A real bit of Anglo-Welsh pride at stake in this match. Definitely. The big one for us then up next. Connacht in Galway welcome pool leaders sale. Can't win this. We we go top of the pool with a trip to Bordeaux the week after. I'll be down there doing a fan cam, so I'll more than likely have better coverage than the Challenge Cup themselves. Fair. How important is the Challenge Cup in terms of Connacht's season? It's more important that we can manage a squad over two competitions. Especially, we have a good chance of being in Champions Cup roping next year. Getting that balance right and getting all the players that are on the fringe of the squad playing at a level where they can fit in against bigger teams is needed. So prove the point here, make it work for next year. Exactly. La Rochelle in Pool 4 play host to Zebre and hard to see the Italians coming out of that with any kind of positive results. But in Pool 5, Benetton have Agen at home. And I can only see a positive outcome for the Italians in that match. French team away from home? That will go well. <laughs> Well, that's us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week for the return of European Rugby. We do love hearing from you, so get in touch on facebook.com slash the second row or on Instagram and Twitter where we're at the second row. That's 2ND, not the word second. And thank you to everyone who is liking, subscribing and following the podcast, wherever that may be, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. You know the drill by now. So until next time, goodbye. Thanks again for listening. Take care.